Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, and I will be reading verses 1 through 17. I would ask you to please rise, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy scripture. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we begin this morning and approach the word, let's bow together. Almighty God, you who have made yourself known to us, and the Son, the Word made flesh, which we have just heard. We pray today that you may reveal yourself to us in this, your Word, and in the preaching of it. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, might be pleasing in your sight. Father, speak to us this day, that we might know you and grow in you, to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. 
So if you're looking at your bulletin this morning, you're thinking, hmm, part one, um, I want to reassure you, part two does not begin at a quarter of 12, so you can relax on that count. Um, but my, <clears throat> my title, True Spirituality, comes from the book written 50 years ago by Dr. Francis Schaeffer. He wrote True Spirituality in 1971 after about 15 years, maybe 18 years of ministry in Switzerland. And he began there a, a ministry that became known as Libri Fellowship. And it was 45 years ago that Kathy and I were at Libri Fellowship in England, where his daughter and son-in-law had begun a work similar to that. And I became a believer through the teaching of Dr. Schaefer. I'm indebted to him and his faithfulness to the Word of God lived out and declared. But I want to, I want to read to you as we begin just a, a brief paragraph as he begins the book. This book was the result of a, might say, crisis of faith for him. It began in the mid-50s. Not that he disbelieved, but rather he said to himself, why is it that I do believe? I mean, I'm a minister. I've been a minister for 10 years. I'm here as a missionary in Switzerland. And I proclaim these things. Why do I hold to them? And so he just began to think through that and developed a teaching which eventually became this book. And so he writes these words again in 1971. The question before us is what the Christian life, true spirituality, really is and how it may be lived in a 20th century setting. Of course, 50 years later, we're the 21st century, but the question still remains. The first point which we must make is that it is impossible even to begin living the Christian life or to know anything of true spirituality before one is a Christian. And the only way to become a Christian is neither by trying to live some sort of a Christian life nor by hoping for some sort of religious experience, but rather by accepting Christ as Savior. No matter how complicated, educated, or sophisticated we may be, or how simple we may be, we must all come the same way insofar as becoming a Christian is concerned. There are no exceptions. This is true for all men everywhere, through all space and all time. Jesus said a totally exclusive word, no man comes unto the Father but by me. And that's the foundation of Dr. Schaefer's teaching and ministry and of his life. And I was reflecting on that as I read and prepared for the message before us today. Paul here is writing to the church in Colossae, which is in Asia Minor. He had gone in that region proclaiming the gospel before going on to Macedonia and having a ministry among the Greeks. And he's in prison probably um, at the same time he wrote the book of Ephesus. He writes to the Colossians. He has heard of difficulties in their midst, particularly the preaching of, uh, I would call him hyper-spiritualist, who proclaimed a new kind or a better kind or a deeper kind of Christian faith. They weren't of another faith. They just felt like, Paul, you did a great job. You just didn't go far enough. And we've got some better news, some richer news, some fuller news. But of course, it was, it was old news. It was an old heresy. And Paul writes to confront that in this letter 
to the Colossians. And in chapter 3, he begins to set forth the application of the truth of his gospel, of the preaching of Jesus Christ. He has, he has if you will, taught doctrine in the first two chapters, and now he begins to teach praxis, the practical application of that truth. He, he, never, he never leaves one without the other. Because if we're going to live in accordance with true spirituality, the abundant Christian life, it must be grounded on the orthodox Christian faith. That true spirituality, if I can say this, true spirituality is the intentional application of our Christian faith to the practical demands of human life. The intentional application of our Christian faith to the practical demands of human life. It wasn't long after I'd become a Christian, Kathy and I were on our bicycles in the western part of England. We had seen Stonehenge early in the morning, and then at Stonehenge encountered a local fellow. That's another story in itself, but he invited us home to dinner. So at the end of the day, he gave us directions, and uh, we bicycled up to his house that evening in time for supper. And as he was preparing supper, we explained to him we were at this Christian study community called the Brie over in, in Hampshire, and that you know we, we were now on a little bit of a hiatus from that, but we had come to know uh, Jesus and, and known him as Savior. And um, Bob, which was his name, Bob, as he listens, making supper, and he says, oh, he said, I think that's great. I think everyone should believe something. It doesn't matter just as long as you believe it. Well, there I left it for a moment. And then he went on to talk about his neighborhood, where he lived. And he had a new neighbor, somebody who had bought a home in the community. And it was the property straddled, if you will, an access path to a hiking trail. And the fellow who bought the property had, in essence, fenced off the public access to that trail and put up large stones so you couldn't even pull cars into where you used to park. And Bob was lamenting that. And he said, this man is a member of parliament. He's a, you know, the MP for the area. I just don't understand what he's thinking. I mean, how could he do such a thing? <clears throat> I, I just don't know how he would do that. And I said to him, I, I don't mean to be forward, Bob, but you said not too long ago as we were talking that everybody should believe something. It just doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. He stopped me almost in mid-sentence, and he said, no, no, he said, I, I meant that in politics and religion. And then he stopped himself, and he said, hmm, I guess it does matter what you believe. It does matter what you believe. And all I could do was nod. It does matter what you believe. And so, so Paul says it matters what you believe, and here's, here's how and what you need to do as a result of believing these things. So if you have your insert, the first four points of my insert are in essence Paul's spiritual imperatives. This, this is the key to true spirituality. And then Paul takes that, and I'm only going to touch in, in point five on the first part, but he, he addresses, in essence, five arenas of Christian behavior, of Christian life. And that is the, the church, the, the relationship with Christ, first of all, that's foundational. And then the relationship with the local church, the relationship in one's family, the relationship 
with work and the world outside you. And then ultimately, of course, it's the work of evangelism and, and relationship to the, to the larger world outside. So, so work you might think of as an immediate sort of arena and the world beyond as a larger. And I'm going to touch on those last four next week in part two. So you can, as I say, rest assured, we're not going to pick up part two at a quarter to noon. But I want to touch on these imperatives, these spiritual imperatives. Um, Glenn has read them. You've got your outline there. I want you to follow. So verse one of chapter three, seek the things that are above. And, and that Greek word is a present imperative. In other words, keep seeking, keep seeking, keep seeking the things above. You need to know and rejoice in the Lord as your savior. If you could put in the simple terms, the chief concern of Christian life is to dwell in, to maintain, to grow in our relationship with Jesus. You know, we sing Jesus is all the world to me. Well, we need to work on making that a reality. Because if, if it's not the, the foundational grounding of your life, then your life is not going to work in these other areas, the, whether it's the, the local church or your job or, or your family or the world beyond. It, it just won't work. Because Christianity, you know, as, as I read from Dr. Shaver, Christianity is not a, a religion in a very real sense. It's, it's not a, a system of observances or of practices or or of ways of doing things it is not a kind of warm feeling on the inside where we just think warm thoughts it is in fact a relationship with a person with jesus christ and is that that paul says we need to keep on seeking now we've we've heard much over the last i'm gonna say decade even of of seeker sensitive church seeker-sensitive congregations. But the biblical perspective is that the world that doesn't know Jesus isn't seeking Jesus. They're seeking some way to try to get right with God. And it may be, you know, in, in their practices. It may be in wisdom. You know, there's some uh, faiths in the world that focus on wisdom. There's some ways of even approaching <coughs> Christian faith that focus on signs or mysticism or spirituality. But Unbelievers seek ways to be righteous in themselves, however that's accomplished. And so in a, in a true sense of the word, unbelievers don't seek, only believers seek. But behind the believers seeking is God himself who sought us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were lost, Jesus saved us. While, while we were rebels, we were given pardon and brought near. So, so it is God who seeks and it is we who are found. And there are no seekers in the world outside. And so Paul says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where he is. That's what we affirm in the Apostles' Creed as we recite it together. That we need to look upwards we need to look where Jesus is. We've seen the bracelet. We've seen the phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? And while it can be a bit simplistic, it is also the case. What would my Lord do? What would my Lord do? One commentator says this. 
as we move on to the second, setting your mind. One commentator says this, Christians are to set their minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is to use the Christian's renewed mind, says the commentator, in the continued contemplation of the ascended Christ. Christ is the one whom we love to seek for himself, to praise with overflowing heart, than one we are content simply to be with. He is also one whom now we must get to know. What are his likes and dislikes? What pleases him? Who is he and what does this mean for the world and for us? What is there about him that we need to know if we are to grow to maturity in our Christian faith? I recall years ago, I was down in the morning at the kitchen table having my quiet time, and my, my son Bryce, who was probably three at the time, maybe four, came down in his little footy pajamas and crawled up on my lap. As I was sitting there having my quiet time, he just fell asleep. And I remember looking at him and thinking, if he can come and sit on my lap and fall asleep, and I delight in that, in him just being near me, why is it that I have a hard time in that same kind of relationship with God? Why do I feel like God is unhappy if I fall asleep during my quiet time? I don't know if that ever happens to you. But, you know, you just feel, like I'm just not spiritual enough to make God happy. And that's not the point. God delights in us, not because of anything we have done or anything that we are, but because of what Jesus has done, who has given his life for us. And Paul says that. Set your mind on things above. That's the second point. For you have died. In other words, verse 1, if you've been raised, how did you get raised? Well, you died first. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. See, one of the things that these false teachers brought was this notion that somehow or other you could, you could enter into the more perfect Christian life. You could have your, your best life now. That, that you know, in, in some Christian traditions... I would say heretical ones, but there's notion, there's a perfectionism available in this life. And of course, if you're not feeling that, then these spiritualizers seem very, very attractive. Oh boy, you know, I could, I could be the perfect Christian. But the reality is we're not, and we will never be until Christ returns. You see, the life that we really have been given, judicially, if you will, we have been forgiven, justified by God's grace. That life is not visible. We struggle with sins in this world. We struggle with temptations, with old habits, and, and, and we stumble and we fall. And if a person were to look at us to say, I don't see, you know, the Christian life in you, we'd have to say yes. It's hidden in Christ. My life is hidden in Christ. And if you think about it, Jesus, though not sinful looked like any other man. He didn't appear to be the son of God in glory here on earth, did he? And, and they accused him, say, well, we know who he is. He's the son of the carpenter. How could he possibly be God? Because his true identity was also hidden. But when he returns, when Christ, who is our life, appears, when he comes back, then it's also going to appear what we are. You know, as John says, it does not yet appear what we are, but this we know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the world will then know 
Christ in his glory and will know us in our perfection. But until then, it's not going to happen. And so we need to set our minds on things above so that we are continually focused on Christ. Our, our old life is gone and the new life has come. And that new life is one that is hidden in Christ, not accessible or visible to the world around us. We, we just don't look like our master and we never will until he returns. But in the meantime, we need to put our mind, set our mind, keep setting is actually, again, the Greek. Keep thinking about the things that are above. Paul then says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I want to just draw your attention before we continue. Look back in verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul is not calling believers to ignore the responsibilities of work, the responsibilities of family, the responsibilities of citizenship. We are not called to go sit you know, on flagpoles or be hermits in caves. That's not where true spirituality is worked out. And that things that are on earth is, in fact, the same Greek word that appears in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. In other words, the things that are here that need to be abandoned, denounced, rejected, turned away from are, as Paul points out, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. I, I want more. That we are called to put those away. To, to encounter them, you may be driving along and there's a song on the radio and it clicks your mind to some place that you used to be or you're tempted to be. And, and Paul says you need to put that to death. Put it aside. Say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Cleanse me. Make me into the person you want me to be. And there is an array of arenas in which that's the case. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. When we encounter those, we need to put them to death. Now, you know, it's true that when, when we are born, we're born into a family. There are systems in place. There are, you might say... <laughs> Characters or characteristics that we inherit. You know, he looks like his dad. She looks like her mother. You know, this is true. And all of us come from someplace. I, I love one of my seminary professors said, if you ever meet a person who claims to be self-made, check to see if they have a navel. Because that's going to indicate they came from somewhere, isn't it? Well, these things... These thoughts, these attractions, these temptations, they come from somewhere. They come from our character. But we are to be formed into the likeness of Christ. So ju just the same way that if we encounter, you know, a difficulty at our work situation or a, a, a friction point in a relationship, we need to work at making that better. We, we encounter a world full of challenges and difficult circumstances, and we are not surprised or disappointed that we have to sort of roll up our sleeves and get to work to counter the material in the material world. So we ought not be surprised when we encounter the same thing in our inner life. It's, it's a job we need to do. What is that job? We need to put to death those things which are earthly in us that may, might become 
more and like the Lord Jesus. You've probably heard the old saying, Plan, plant a thought, reap a deed. Plant a deed, reap a habit. Plant a habit, reap a character. Plant a character, reap a destiny. And Paul is saying this is true, therefore you need to put to death the things that are earthly in you. Take care of your conduct, and you'll find that your character follows along. Take care of your conduct, and the character will take care of itself. And Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You need an incentive? You need an incentive? Here's an incentive. The wrath of God is coming. But also, Christ is coming, and we are his, and we are formed in his likeness, and we want to reflect his likeness to the world around. So the incentives are both positive and negative, and Paul says both of them. And then he says, put away, put away the life you once lived. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Okay, these earthly passions. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. And I think the Greek, especially as we think about the relationship to the world around us, is better translated not obscene talk, but abusive talk. If you think about relationships with one another, the the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander are all, you might say, interpersonal or personal transgressions. Obscene talk just doesn't fit with the flow of Paul's thought, but abusive talk certainly does. It's the way we belittle and the way we confront and the way we uh, denigrate others around us. Paul says, put away this life you once lived. You used to be that way, but now you're different. You need to put that away. And again, we come from cultures. We come from family systems. We come from uh, you know, places that have particular ways of doing things. I, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and we did not have accents where I grew up. Because everybody talked like us, right? <laughs> if you grew up in the south, you all talk alike, right? You, you grew up with a particular way of looking at things that's handed down from maybe your ancestors, from your community, from your social setting. And then you become a believer and you go, wait a minute. Those, those things need to be judged in the light of Scripture. It's often the case and has been in, in let's say, the last 50 even to 100 years that missionaries are criticized for coming into cultures and confronting the traditions and the practices of that culture as though somehow or other cultures have a built-in integrity. But they don't. Each of us, both as individuals and as cultures, will be judged by God by the same standard of holiness. So that, that, that when, when we come to know Christ, as he says in verse, verse 8, we need to put all these away. We're not that way anymore. It wasn't until I went in the Navy... And I was sitting in a mess hall, and I heard somebody that sounded like they were a next-door neighbor. I realized, you know what? We do have accents in Western PA. 
We talk like that and other people talk differently. But that's what the gospel is intended to do, to show us how we talk, how we live, and how it is to be both compared to the gospel of Christ and the holiness of God, and then to be put away. The things that just seem normal to us now need to be set aside. I had a friend who, who used to, you know, whenever I would be bemoaning the state of the world around me, he would say, and, and why is it you're surprised when pagans act like pagans? Well, you shouldn't be. Because that's the old way of life that you used to walk in, Paul says. You acted just like pagans, and now you need to put that away. You need to put that away. And you need to put away the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the abusive talk from your mouth that does what? That divides you from your neighbors. So, so Paul's four imperatives, if you will, I want to touch on them again just briefly. They are seek the things above, set your mind on things above, Put to death what is earthly in you and put away the life you once lived. And if we do those things, Paul says, and now you need to see how they affect or impact these spheres of life in which true spirituality is to be seen. And the first place that Paul touches here is our relationship to our fellow believers in the local congregation. Now, historically in his situation, of course, he was probably writing to a home church or, or a large assembly of home churches to people who were in community with one another, who, who knew one another, who probably didn't like one another in some way. And this is why he leads on in verses 9, 10, and 11 to describe how we should behave with one another in the local church. First off, he says... 9 and 10 and 11 sort of build up to to 12, which is put on then the things that befit God's people. Put on the things. But notice how he starts. Our ESV translation doesn't have a paragraph break here, but I think it would be useful if it did. I mean, commentators are somewhat divided about it. But if we accept that Paul is encouraging the Colossians to live out their, quote, true spirituality in the midst of these spheres of existence, then it makes perfect sense as he starts to talk about the local church to put a paragraph break between 8 and 9. And he says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Okay, you've put it off, and now what's, you might say, the first thing that's important in a relationship with another person? To, to have integrity, to be honest about who and what you are. This is me, and I need to be honest about it. I have put off the old self, and I have put on the new self being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I'm to look like Jesus, and where I don't, I need to acknowledge that to God, and I need to acknowledge that to others. Where I fail where I sin, where I break faith with others, I need to acknowledge that. And Paul says, don't lie. Be truthful. Be honest. Because, as he says, you are being renewed in the image of a creator. In other words, you are a new creation. And in that new creation, there aren't 
Greeks and Jews and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian, Scythian and slave and free. No, those, those divisions that mark the pagan world in which you live are to be put away. Paul sees in the believers in Colossae as frail, as fallen, as inconsistent as they are. He sees in them a new creation of God. And he says, as that new creation, you're not to be divided from one another the way you were in the old pagan world. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. In other words, Jesus is all that matters. And it's only, it's only when and if Jesus is all that matters, when he's everything to everyone, that these real divisions of Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, all of these things that separate us from one another are set aside because of what Jesus is. If you remember the story of Solomon and, and the two women who came to him, they both had infants. One of the infants died in the night, and they both come in the morning claiming the live infant. And, and Solomon, in his wisdom given from the Lord, you know, <laughs> says to them, whose is it? And it was he said, she said, or she said, she said. Um, and he finally said, well, look, here's what we'll do. We'll just cut the infant in half, and each of you can have half. And, of course, the real mother said, no, 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 you know, g- give it to her. Let her have the baby. And Solomon said, this is the real mother, the one who cares so much for the infant that she's willing to see it given away rather than to be divided. And that's what Paul is saying here to us as people in the church. We need to be willing to, to give away what even may be rightfully ours so that the church is not divided. And if we think about those kinds of divisions, the little ones, you know, the, the color of the carpet in the nursery or the color of the carpet in the new sanctuary, you know, the style of music, the length of the pastor's sermon, you know, all of these things that people find reason to go somewhere else. In other words, I'm going to divide myself from the body or divide the body over this issue. And Paul says, no, this isn't befitting God's people. You are to have compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient hearts. It's interesting then, Paul says, put on, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen one. Well, the nation of Israel was God's chosen one throughout their history. And here's Paul taking that language and applying it to the believers in Colossae. And he's saying, this is what God's people are like because when God chose the people, the Israelites, this is what he showed himself to be like. He was holy. I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Be holy as I am holy. He was compassionate. He was kind and, and meek. And patient with them. He bore with them all through that 40 years in the wilderness and and into the promised land. Paul says, this is how you are to be with one another. And if you have a complaint against someone else, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And then, of course, you have to put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together. Why, Why would I get along with you? When I'm a Jew and you're a Greek, you're a barbarian and I'm a culture. Why? Because Christ has loved me and therefore I am to love you. The, the peace of Christ is not some mystical kind of inner 
uh, bliss. It is rather, in fact, an objective thing. Christ died on the cross to make peace between God and sinners. That's the peace of Christ. It's an objective, real thing. And so when I come to a brother or sister in the Lord and I have a disagreement, it's not how do I feel? It's not some kind of spiritual experience. It is what is the peace of Christ? It is that we are made one in him. And unless and until we are one in him, we will not be one in one another. So Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. You need to put on love and let the peace of Christ rule. And notice this in the next three verses. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then whatever you do, give thanks to God. In other words, gratitude for what God has done for us is the foundation of how we are to deal with one another. How do we find that sense of peace that, 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 that Christ has given if we are not thankful for what we've received? You know, the, I think the call to the church in this COVID and post-COVID world is going to have to be grounded in gratitude in our salvation. It can't be grounded in our religious traditions. That's not to say that we, we abandon the faith or our orthodoxy or even our Presbyterian understanding of that. But it is to say that, that the church will need to ground itself again in absolute awe and wonder and gratitude of what God has done for us because that's finally portable. You know, the pews aren't too portable. And I'm sure Lisa would agree, maybe you can get the harp around, but the piano's not coming with, right? So, so the music's not portable either. But a grateful heart is portable. It's personal. You know, it, it, it's interpersonal because gratitude spills over into ways that we deal with one another. And so Paul says, look, the imperatives that I've given to you are to be applied, first of all, in ways that create harmony, that, that, that bind us together as brothers and sisters locally, because from that then flow all the other things that we are called to. We, we put on love, and in that love, we attend to the word of Christ. We rejoice in singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And finally, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, those who, who recognize and appreciate what we have in our salvation through Jesus Christ, we, we are drawn into a deeper appreciation, a deeper fellowship with one another, with, with everyone for whom Jesus is the center of their life. He's the center of all their hopes and all their joys. And, and when we know that together, it makes for unity. And so as we conclude part one this morning, I just want to leave us with this recognition that as God's people, we are called to put on love, to, to dwell together in obedience before the word of God, and to rejoice with gratitude at our salvation. And when we do that, you know, it won't much matter whether COVID is loose in the world or something else. It will be a light in the darkness. It will be an invitation to others to join us at the throne, to rejoice in the Savior, and to give thanks to his name 
as we worship him. Let's bow together. Father, we would indeed put on those things which befit us as your chosen people. You have called us. You have claimed us. You have made us your own. And in that promise and in that inheritance, we can live with confidence and with joy in gratitude to you and in praise of your name. So take us from this place, not only in this day, or in this new year before us, but in all the rest of our lives. Take us and make us your servants, your ambassadors. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.